Hello and welcome to episode 74 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. I'm your host Matthew Nugabauer coming to you on this March 2nd, 2021. March comes back around. It's the Tuesday after the second Sunday of Lent if you're counting. Uh, yes, I did take a few weeks off just to regroup and uh, get into the Lent schedule a bit. Got that going on and uh, moving things to Tuesday, seeing how that works. Hopefully that works all right with you as well. Um, definitely going to release this tonight and then you know, see it on, it on your uh, podcast feeds uh, wherever you listen. I definitely appreciate you listening in. Tonight we are going to talk about Claudia Gray's Into the Dark. I have a few things to say thinking about that over the last few weeks. Um, and I, I will say I am halfway through uh, A Test of Courage by Justina Ireland. The, uh, the younger reader yeah, skewed novel, which isn't bad. It's, uh, I'll hopefully have something to say about that in two weeks, because next week I'll have to go dive headfirst into that WandaVision finale. Um, definitely going to give that some more treatment. Before we dive in, uh, I do want to mention on the poll list. Uh, so we got Darth Vader over the last few weeks, and also a comic from the last few weeks and a comic from just this past week. Darth Vader number 10 and Captain Marvel number 26 going all marvelous. Uh, so Darth Vader number 10 by Greg Pak continuing the story. He is on Mustafar at this point. This is set after Empire Strikes Back and we get another flashback, another vision um, connecting himself to that moment on the high ground or in the lava flow with Obi-Wan uh, in Revenge of the Sith connecting that to the vision potentially of Luke in the throne room in Return of the Jedi shortly after, who knows how long after, but we're, we're, we're heading towards that moment. Eventually we know Charles Sewell is also going to be writing this, this lead up book um, probably coming I mean, focus on bounty hunters, but coming up to Return of the Jedi and the events there involving Han Solo. Anyway, this is about Luke and Vader and it's clear this is yet another flashback. And my response to that was different than the ones before. We've gotten these before in pretty much every Vader comic so far. And, and throughout this current run, we've gotten flashbacks to Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith and those events in those books, or in those films rather. And it, it's pretty clear that this is the way the comic authors especially are going to tell are telling the story of the return of Anakin Skywalker. They're telling the story of Vader, well, of, of Anakin remembering who he is. And that ties in wonderfully to what I've said about who Darth Vader is as the failed attempt to forget Anakin Skywalker keeps pulling back, keeps pulling himself back to that moment, keeps fighting himself on that, that hill. And you saw at the end of, the Kieran Gillen run where he's, he's fighting himself again on, on that, that lava flow, uh, the, the lava bank there. And, uh, yeah, it, the first time when I read that at the, the Kieran Gillen run, that was really engrossing, really enriching. I was transfixed. I had to read the comic all over again, or that, that one issue number 25 all over again. And then Charles soul does, does a lot. I should also say the, the crossover between Kieran Gillen and Jason Aaron, I believe, in the ongoing uh, very early on, that was 
really fascinating. That's one of my favorite moments, just introducing us to the idea that Vader is going to remember his life as Anakin. And we're going to see it. This is the, the moment where he remembers the moment where Padme says, I'm pregnant. And it's the moment he learns about Luke Skywalker and that he has a son. Um, that, yeah, that, that excited me. Anyway, jumping, that was, I guess, would have been 2015, maybe early 2016. I can't remember. Jumping to now to 2021, it's it's can I won't say it's a tired strategy. It's it's still exciting and intriguing, but it it's the go to. And of course, I mean, I'm all here for it. It's just it's not novel or new anymore. It's the consistent enriching story that they keep building upon. This idea that in order to show Anakin remembering himself, he has to literally go back. We have to give Vader flashback visions in this case uh, uh interestingly enough it, by way of this large maw creature that uh, related i think to the borgal it seems like uh, that blocks the way to exegol so we're hopefully actually going to get some recontextualization of the mess that was the rise of skywalker <laughs> uh, and and all the interesting sith lore i should be fair to the, in that film but uh, looking forward to that continuing as he's on his way to Exegol now. Uh, Captain Marvel number 26. I want to mention the end of, uh, I guess I forget what the, the name of the arc was, but Carol sent into the future and she has to uh, confront the son of Namor, the, the sea king guy and Enchantress, who is an Asgardian kind of, naughty slash evil Asgardian magician, witch type character. And uh, anyway, it, it was a satisfying conclusion to this arc. Carol's back, thrown back into our current time. Uh, Ove is his name, is sent back even further. And so he's got a head start. It's kind of in the same vein, the same time I'm watching, just coming to the end of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I know that it, it sh- that the show finished uh, last year, and it it is a bit odd that I'm doing both those both those at the same time because that's also about that last season is also about going back in time and and the bad guys being thrown back in time, and, um, so it it is this funny convergence and coincidence that I'm and maybe I mean who knows what the the writing I mean Agents of Shield was kind of on its own doing its own thing. Um, as is, you know, Kelly Thompson writing this Captain Marvel book. And it, I found it a satisfying conclusion to the arc. It was uh, very, I mean, I mean, the the good thing with Kelly Thompson, the way she writes Carol is a lot in the same way, same vein as Kelly Sue DeConnick, just as a really fleshed out human character with all these powers, which is what Marvel does best. All right. So speaking of fleshed out human characters, I do want to talk a little bit about into the dark. Um, I, I did, I was hoping, I'll admit, I was hoping there'd be more to say about force wisdom and going in depth with that, but there wasn't so much of that. Uh, there, there was a little bit, but it's a young adult novel. And what's interesting though, is it's a young adult novel about a Jedi. And, and that's different because usually with YA, you do want to have some some romance bubbling up pretty strongly and and that makes sense i mean that's 
when you know kids teenagers youth are are first really encountering these things in a in a pretty overwhelming way uh, those types of feelings and so um i mean with claudia gray's other works or lost stars again i've talked about romance in the in the past i mean lost stars is one of the best out there leia has her own little little dalliances in princess of alderaan and those are both very believable claudia gray knows how to get into the minds of these younger characters and explore how they're feeling about each other and the tensions and the connections there is a little bit of that uh, when i talk about nan and and wreath there's some chemistry there uh, you know if he was if you if he wasn't a jedi padawan i'd say yeah i'd ship that um except you know she's also uh an eye hill so <laughs> Um, by the way, spoilers for, for all these books. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, there was, a, I will say there, there was a bit of, uh, interesting Jedi stuff going on in this book. Um, the most important I'd say is, uh, Reith remembering the lessons from Jorah Mali, who I, I looked at in depth my last episode a few weeks ago, her perspective on the force in that great Jedi council meeting. Well, here we get kind of more of her very, uh, rule bound, but rule bound and hierarchical, but encouraging wisdom to wreath because wreath, I kind of identify with him a little bit. He, he wants to learn. He wants to study. He would love nothing more. And I wouldn't say that's necessarily true about me now, but, he would love nothing more than to sit in a carol in the the temple and pour into you know historical tomes and treatises and theories and theologies and um i mean i could say who doesn't want to do that i i want to do that part of me does at least right and one of the things that's nice about the pandemic is we can take the time to study these things one of the things that's nice about Jedi and the High Republic is we see that really encouraged. We have the example of Comic Vitus in in this novel, and and Reith gets to actually have this event, adventure alongside of him, and seeing how a Jedi can show action in contemplation. And that 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 idea of action and contemplation that's a very important Ignatian. Uh, idea. Um, so the St. Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuits, he really wanted his, his priests, his community to be educated and uh, go deep into philosophy and theology. And so the Jesuits, like the Jedi, Jesuits, haha, <laughs> just make that up. So the Jesuits are known in part for their universities, for their scholarly pursuits like the college I, I got my MA at, my master's at at Regis College. Uh, you've ever thought of, you know, heard of Georgetown or Marquette or Boston College. These are all, you know, St. Francis Xavier, all these things. These are all Jesuit schools, Jesuit universities that really promote learning and study. But they do it in order to have a reasoned, contemplative, aware, uh, informed approach to the 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 needs and challenges of the real world. So, one of the uh, one of the other pillar of, of the Jesuit order is, uh, or the Society of Jesus. They're not fully. I don't know if they're technically an order, 
of the society of Jesus is uh, is action, is service. And there's even a, a Jesuit core, kind of like the Peace Corps, or Je I forget what they're technically called, but uh, Jesuit relief relief missions, relief efforts, and another uh, kind of charism or, or thing that Ignatius had established was that they weren't going to have a habit. They were going to go out and live and dress in the real world. So yes, they do have to make the vows of, of celibacy and obedience and poverty, but they do that and they live in this, these other communities in the context really with, with an eye towards society. So you look at someone like Jim Martin, for example, who within the Jesuits himself is actually pretty, pretty controversial, but uh, I, I appreciate him. He, and he, he has a public face. He has a public image because uh, he sees that as his service. Of course, the, the, the most important Jesuit in the world right now is, is Pope Francis, um, who, I mean, becoming on becoming Pope was released from that, but he considers himself, he's still part of the Jesuit mindset and upbringing and formation. And, and you see with Wreath, then, the, you know, he wants, wants to be very bookish, just coming back to the story. He wants to be very bookish, but the challenge for him, and I think what Jorah was trying to encourage in him was, yes, take that training, take that learning, and apply it in, out into the, the galaxy beyond. But we're going to Starlight Beacon. You're going to have this experience. Um, how she wanted to have the same, have that experience of observing the Jedi Council, and how uh, you know the the wider political, social, and, and spiritual political uh, goings on, imaginations, and questions of of that amazing council scene that I, I talked about last time. And what's interesting then here is is he gets the opportunity to do just that. He gets to well, by happenstance, kind of a happy accident, if you will. It's kind of scary and tragic too, of course. They they come upon this Amexine station. And the Amexine warriors, at least from Wreath's perspective, are this ancient thing that he studied <laughs> well in the past. And uh, they encounter these these idol images. And he can he and Comic can actually kind of sort out what these things mean, and he studied the symbols of them. Uh, of course, Comac and Orla recognize that they did the wrong, did the opposite of what they thought they were doing. They thought the idols were uh, were the, the the dark power. They were actually just holding the dark power in. But Wreath is able to go out and get that experience and, and that adventure that yeah, it, it it encourages his study, but it gives gives uh, meat on the bone for it. And what's heartening to see, though, is we Claudia Gray is such a master at again delving into the experiences of young people. Uh, the for Wreath, even the emotions are are just below the surface because he's he is still a teenager. This is the second Jedi Padawan. She, Claudia Gray has written so well. This, you know, she she wrote Obi Wan as as a seventeen year old Padawan. She wrote him him so well in all his back and forth with Qui Gon and uh, his anxieties and and just fears of not measuring up. Uh, 
here's Wreath with a group of Jedi who are all more experienced than him, Jedi Knights and the Master, uh, including Desiree and uh, uh, Jorah's former Padawan. And he has to struggle through the thing that young people, and, and not just young people, people of lots of ages, but especially young people have to struggle through is stepping out into the real world and learning what your voice is. And the, the beautiful image of, of that Jorah gives of how to do that is, uh, is with the Kyber arch and, um, that meditation that I, it, I'm not quite clear what it looks like kind of crossing the Kyber arch. And it isn't actually a complicated thing, but it's very clear the answer is no one does it alone because the only way to really uh, connect with the force and to actually step out is with the support of people around you, is with the wisdom of masters that come before you, is with the help of friends and uh, more experienced Jedi who come around you. And, you know, it, it was amazing to see the way Komek and Orla interact with him, specifically those two interact with him, uh, include him in what they're doing. They don't look down on him. Who's this, this Padawan coming along that they could have maybe had that attitude. That would have been very unbecoming of them. They're, they encourage him to find his power within as well. I think of when, when Orla and Wreath are, uh, I don't think they're putting the idols back. I think they're, they're trying to unleash the Drengir on the Nihil, <laughs> uh, cause the chaos. And, and Orla says, Wreath, I need you to come with me and help me here. Wreath thinks and starts off not feeling very much in tune with the force. He isn't quite the natural. At least he doesn't think he is. Of course, that taps in with the whole idea that it isn't just lifting rocks. <laughs> it's, it isn't, you know, I mean, yeah, there, there are midi-chlorine counts and all this stuff. You have the natural abilities, but Wreath studies and his patience and his, his ability to, uh, to process these experiences that he's having with himself right? process who he is, who he can be in the wider galaxy. I think, and it doesn't come out and spell this out, but I think he actually ends up becoming more powerful, more in tune with the force. I, yeah, I, I kind of had this weird moment of, Oh, he's not that in tune with the force. He seems all right now. And maybe that's one of those understated things that Claudia Gray is trying to tell us is, Wreath is able to dig in and, and rely on the people around him, rely on these Jedi who have come before him. Jedi who, by the way, when they were his age, had a horrendous experience. And that's another fascinating thing that she dives into, Claudia Gray dives into, and the, the, the novel dives into as a bit of a backstory, both for Comac and Orla's story, stories, they're, they're different stories. And of course, for the story of Starlight Beacon and Orla herself, that she's very fascinating. And I, and I know, uh, Brandon over at Clashing Sabres, he's 
mulling over an article there about um, is Ahsoka like a way seeker? And I think he's kind of onto something. I wouldn't specifically call her that. There are differences in her context and and whatnot. But Orla's experience, uh, a similar age to Ahsoka, uh, when she had her you know, Jedi disillusionment experience, leads her to step out, leads her to go off or want to go off. She, of course, has this one last happy accident in the middle of the great disaster <laughs> that uh, runs into the, the Amexine station. So yeah, that, that's my thoughts about wreath. Um, I will say one little thing about the Amexines. I'm wondering, and, and this is just, this isn't really speculation. This is, this is kind of fair game here. Who knows what happens? Cause of course the Amexines in the Claudia Graverse, if I can call it that, they, the, there's a group called the Amexine warriors who and end up in, in the bloodline novel, and uh, I believe they're the ones who, who joined the First Order and under uh, Clarice Sindian. And uh, I think I'm right about that. I mean, I forgot to check that. But clearly someone has either taken the name or the Amexines have never actually gone away. Another interesting tidbit there is, uh, and this is, uh, you know, the Easter eggs video that Alex and Star Wars Explained has that Amexine station is precisely where Snoke goes to, uh, or, or, or Snoke meets Ben solo when, uh, Ben has just left Luke's temple. So there is some connection between them and, and the dark side and the rise of the first order. We don't know what, because the Amexines are supposedly extinct by this point or supposedly died out. Supposedly, who knows who, if they were defeated by the Drengir, maybe, I don't know. Do we get a sense with in bloodline? The Amexines are actually uh humanoid. Maybe they are connected to the Drengir in, in the later timeline. I don't know. That's, that's me spitballing, but yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting connection and I'm sure Claudia Gray has an idea about the story. So, so there are two more characters I do want to talk about. I want to talk about uh, Nana. I want to talk about Afi. I'll talk about Afi first. You know, it, it's interesting that you know I we've looked at uh, in in light of the Jedi, the relationship between the normal ordinary citizens of the of, of the galaxy of the Republic and the Jedi. Here we get to see these outer rim folk who haven't really encountered the Jedi much, and they don't really know much. And there's this uh, this moment where. Wreath encounters her and something that oh you've never with Wreath saying oh you've never heard of this that and the other, um, even the moment about celibacy and uh, you know have a Jedi has to be can be celibate in heart, who knows entirely what that means but um, yeah it it was that was an interesting experience to read that because uh, we're either used to you know the empires and people hating the Jedi people pining for the Jedi to come back or again in, in the prequel to the first trilogy and in uh, light of the Jedi people vaunting the Jedi and saying, Oh, these amazing space warriors and their amazing abilities and how much we, we trust them to, you know, we trust Avar Chris to, to 
come and, and save us during the great disaster, you know, Loden and Bell crashing, not crashing, landing into the, the middle of this almost riot <laughs> and diffusing it mostly for mostly well, um, in, uh, a test of courage, there's, uh, Senator Staros and, and her daughter having, you know, pretty familiar with the Jedi and having her own ideas. I think, uh, Avon has her own ideas and we'll hopefully get to that in a few weeks. But here is Afi, part of the, the Bind Guild. And, and yes, they, I'm sure they have had some interactions with the Jedi. Do they fully trust them? Do they think, does she think they're kind of naive and kind of simple? These weird space monks. And she, I don't think she knows entirely what to do with them, except to say, hey, they're paying customers. Um, I, I have a business. Well, well, my mother has a business to run. So, uh, sure, why not? <laughs> Let's learn about them, especially as the Republic is coming and expanding into her part of space. She's going to have to get a lot more used to them. I'm wondering if she's going to get a lot more used to their uh, their weaknesses as well and not necessarily have the same sort of rose-tinted view of the Jedi that a lot of people in the Republic are trained to have just because that's the society and the worldview that they're in. She knows about the Force. They call it the Force. They don't call it something else. So maybe that'll be a way in. Maybe knowledge of the Force generally throughout the galaxy might even be one of the ways that the Jedi are able to be successful, at least for a time, in promoting the goodness of the Republic. Uh, we, we all know how that goes ultimately in the end, that they aren't so successful. But speaking of the Jesuits, here we go again. You know, I think of, of the Jesuit missions, especially to India and China. And one of the reasons why, and, and here in North America a little bit too, one of the reasons why they were successful in promoting the gospel is because they were able to tap into local customs and local beliefs in a, in a way that was more or less organic with Western Christianity. And it had to be a bit more mystical, had to be a bit more maybe Eastern in its orientation. But you think of Matteo Ricci and his companions in, in Japan and China, basically coming to them as, uh, as, wise men in their culture and, and uh, growing the longer beards that European men didn't do and wearing local clothing that European men didn't wear because they're not in Europe <laughs> um, or, you know, yeah. And, uh, and definitely learning the language and saying mass for the most part, except for some parts in the local languages, there was a, uh, a way of saying this faith belongs to you as well, to your people. God is not possessed by, uh, by just Italian culture and French culture and Spanish culture. Uh, that took until the mid 20th century for us to really start to comprehend. We are still struggling with it and we're especially struggling with, okay, now what, how do we have a unified church? How do we have a unified 
human family when things seem to be pulling apart again, especially over issues of international trade and power imbalances. In in church debates over just in the last week, wide differences in how we approach sexuality and related identity questions. But the 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 hope there is we can find a common ground and a common faith. And what we see later in in you know, in the Skywalker saga at least is that you know it isn't necessarily the Republic that unifies the galaxy again. It's the Jedi. It's belief in the force. It's it's Luke and it's Ray and uh you know one of the things I wish Rise of Skywalker had done was show Lando going off and finding allies and finding that massive Avengers fleet and saying this because this is what Luke had done. He stood up to the first order and sacrificed his life so people could get away. So there there is there is a a way in uh there I fear the German name for it but a, a a hook and not not a hook to to a violent hook but I think the 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 German word is like um you know how you have two pieces of wood and they're cut so that they lock into each other that that's the term that a lot of uh you know theologians and thinkers about evangelism think about and so i mean this podcast i'm not trying to convert anyone but uh, just trying to find resonances that can connect and can connect people and can communicate way i can communicate my faith to a culture and in a culture and for the sake of doing it for the sake of engaging people and connecting with people so maybe we see a little bit of that with afi she her her storyline i thought was a little naive um in in the sense of bringing down her step her adoptive mother the way she did i was wondering if she was going to actually face more consequences i'm surprised leox went along with it i thought he was going to end up stopping her because it would be his neck on the line too but it turns out that they're able to go off and be independent and maybe that's what leox wanted who knows uh, as well that being said here's what i wonder and this is something i didn't say so much about uh about light of the jedi but it's true with light of the jedi and into the dark and this first just initial foray into high republic you know this is only the first and second chapter this isn't the whole story this isn't even half the story this isn't even a chunk light of the jedi uh the first the 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 first chapter is, is a bit of a synecdoche if i use that term for that whole book how uh, at least the first few chapters starts off nice and fine and then there's the great disaster kind of like how overall is there's conflict but the jedi are there to maintain peace and then at the end uh is it stellan i forget if it's stellan or or the other one who who has that vision of even greater impending doom um similar to the way this novel ends with nan 
and saying, you know, that the Nihil are going to be the end of the Jedi. This is only the first chapter. This is only, or the first, this is maybe the second chapter, Find Into the Dark, of uh, a long, long way to go. So what I'm wondering to that point then is, are we going to see even even the smaller story with Scover and Affy? Are we going to see the personal implications of that? We're going to see the economic implications of a pretty substantial and not not dominant, but pretty important shipping lane to the outer rim being taken out because of illegal slave slavery practices, which is good. It's good that those were taken out, but I think one of Afi, you know, one of Afi's uh, growing pains as again another young person trying to make her way in the world and the galaxy is that we can pursue good things, but they may have implications that we didn't expect. And it's not that we should stop pursuing those good things and pursuing freedom and justice for all people, but to be cognizant, to be smart about it, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, as Jesus says. And, uh, so we'll see. I'm 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 kind of hoping just because that was a setup. I think that wasn't fully paid off in this novel, but it's Claudia Gray. She is the master of setup and payoff, of connecting things across multiple novels. Right? We have the Amexing Warriors. We have that that lock of hair uh, that goes from Leia Prince of Alderaan to Bloodline as well. Uh, yeah, I believe Bloodline, and so. Uh, you know, I, I trust them to continue. I mean, maybe we may not see see them again, but uh, you know, I mean, we're we're hopefully getting a Lost Stars sequel. See how well, you know. I mean, I'm a fan of Wreath. I'm a fan mostly of Affy. I think she's pretty cool. Um, the I think the yeah, one of the things we see with Luke, for example about this age, maybe a few years older, is his naivete gets pushed down and gets confronted with realism about the way the world actually is and the darkness that uh, that is present. You know, he wants to run off and go to the glory of fighting in the rebellion and he confronts that his father is Darth Vader and that means that that evil and darkness is within him within him as well and that's that shadow work is, is an essential part of growing up and that's one of the things that young adult fiction does really well is that first foray into shadow work whatever that looks like that that conflict with themselves so i don't think afi's story is done just for those reasons um but you never know. Could be, I could be wrong about that. I hope not, though. So lastly, we come to Nan. And what was kind of odd, I thought she seemed a little younger at first. But I guess not. I think she is still around the same age as, as Wreath and Affy. Another young character sort of coming into her power. It's a little different. She's in disguise on the station. She's feigning distress. I mean, she actually, I mean, there are the solar flares and 
it's a great disaster, but um, the, her arc is also one of at least seeming to us being weaker and in distress and finding her power, summoning the rest of the Nihil, uh, standing up to Wreath, Jedi, Padawan, but a Jedi with a lightsaber, standing up to him, showing him mercy, which is interesting because the Nihil would call that weakness, but I think we're meant to see it as a bit of strength, especially from the point of view of the Jedi. Mercy is a form of strength. And by mercy, I mean it's not mercy, but, you know, letting him go, letting Wreath go. Um, and yet at the same time, it's another, we see another view out in the galaxy of people in the Outer Rim, what they think of the Jedi. And that continues along very nicely and very coherently from, into, uh, from Light of the Jedi what we see with Markian Rowe and his perspective of Jedi standing for Republic order and uh, just, yeah, I mean, the Nile are uh, at their best, if I can say that they're most sympathetic trying to question what right do the Jedi and the Republic have to, authority over the galaxy and nan reflects that a little bit in her own younger more a bit more tempestuous pun intended yeah. her, her idiom as someone who is younger also again struggling and trying to find ways to step out and own her power uh, she's nihil we don't want her own her don't want her to own her power in that way because the Nile are ultimately antagonists. But there's possible hope. Again, she she let Wreath go. They you know they have to fight the Drengar, <laughs> the Drengir rather. You know maybe there will be a way of uh, reconciliation, not reconciliation, but my enemy's enemy is my friend. I don't know. I heard a great theory. Again, I think also from Star Wars Explained that, oh yeah, it was on the Q&A, that the, the Nihil somehow morph into the Cloud Riders we see in Solo, who are awesome and are part of the Rebel Alliance. <laughs> and we don't think that at first, but they have the masks because they have the masks. They have the, uh, uh, you know, they, they come in with the loud music and upset whatever is happening in the story. But ultimately it's because they're trying to get the coaxium to uh, feed the ships that are actually fighting for people's freedom, possibly refugee ships, whatnot. Remember the high Republic. Let me say this again is a prequel proper to the Skywalker saga. So any force, including say the separatists that, is opposing the Republic is also opposing the empire. You have to remember that any force that is saying questioning why this Coruscant core has the right to tell everyone else in the galaxy what to do is going to continue doing that, especially when it's naked and bare as the galactic empire controlling through, through dominance. 
it's not necessarily the case that the Jedi are lying to themselves. They are actually trying to seek benevolent union with the rest of the galaxy. But as we'll see, they, you know, they don't succeed. They get pushed back. They get caught up in this clone war and they end up being part of what divides the galaxy and what plunges it into darkness. That last comment then, I, I, that being said, um, that last comment then saying the the Nile are going to be the end of the Jedi. I do wonder if they are also being co-opted by the Sith a little bit. And when, and the question on everyone's mind is, when are the Sith actually going to show up? And what are they going to be doing? And what are they going to be looking like? We may not be able to, we may not know. We may not actually be able to see it until much later or much, you know, much far after uh, they actually reveal themselves. They might have been embedded all along, as we know they are somewhere in the galaxy. We know, of course, that the Sith are the end of the Jedi. Of course, that the Jedi are the end of themselves. They get pushed back. They get, you know, they're, they're nowadays, at this point in the High Republic, they're in outposts and they're going to Starlight Beacon, which, as we, we read in this novel, is a symbol of two warring planets coming, making peace and, you know, after a great tragedy. But they get pushed back. They retreat to the temple on Coruscant. They're clearly humbled. They're clearly go along, going along with whatever the Senate and ultimately the Chancellor says. In order to make nice, they end up framing Ahsoka for bombing without the bombing without any evidence, and uh, yeah, they end up the height of their powers, letting Darth Sidious rise, form the Empire, and wipe them out. So, the, this almost climax at the end of Into the Dark, it is apt. It's a reminder, again, that this is a prequel to the Skywalker saga. And yet again, I should say, Claudia Gray, the master of setup and payoff, master of leading characters around a corner, and then leading us around the corner, stopping, we don't know what they see, switching to another character point of view that is equally as fleshed out and rich. We don't know what they see. And then finally giving us the full picture. We see this in uh, in utero, in, in miniature, in Into the Dark. We, I mean, George Lucas showed it to us on a grand scale in Revenge of the Sith. And, uh, Hopefully, and I trust the uh, continue to trust the authors of High Republic to show us this long, drawn out, very rich story comprising of these smaller stories. It's going to take some patience, but strap in because the first two books so far have been stellar, been incredible, and uh, yeah, can't wait to hear and read and see what comes next. That's it for now. This has been episode 74 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. If you want to give me a follow on Twitter at NEUG485, and a follow on Instagram at MNEUG1138, 
as always, I appreciate you listening, uh, subscribing, if you will, and commenting if you wish. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you always.